0: Hi everybody, my name is Alistair McQueen. I'm the Head of Savings and Retirement at Aviva. Welcome to the Aviva podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Anna Dixon, the Chief Executive of the Centre for Aging Better. Hi Anna. Hi there Alistair. Thank you for joining us today. I'm, I'm speaking to you from my kitchen table in Yorkshire. Where, where are you today?
1: So I am at the top of the house in what has become my home office uh in stoke newington in north london
0: great well thank you for joining us and we're here today to talk about aging i'm delighted to have you you are a bit of a, a hero of mine when it comes to the subject of aging so there's no better person to speak to but for those who have not met you before could you maybe introduce yourself and introduce the center for aging better
1: yeah, definitely. So I am the chief executive of the Centre for Aging Better. We are a charity that is funded by National Lottery Community Fund. And our mission is to create a society where we can all enjoy later life. So it's very positive. And how we do that is that we try and gather up evidence and data and research and use that to make changes both nationally and locally in both policy and practical changes in communities, in workplaces, in housing and in how uh, healthy we are. So that's what we do.
0: And and yourself, I've never actually known this. How did you end up becoming so interested in the subject of ageing?
1: Well, um, my background is actually in health and social care. I've always worked in jobs somewhere between researchers. So I did spend a bit of time in university um, policy. I confess I did spend a bit of time in central government working mm. in the Department of Health um, as it was but also trying to sort of work on practice. So supporting uh, the NHS and frontline clinicians to improve the services for patients. So I guess that's my main background. And through that, I recognise that so much of the things that make a difference to both how long we live, but also how healthy those extra years are, actually sits outside the NHS. And it's much more to do with Things like housing and employment. So that's really uh, what brought me to ageing, sort of a recognition that if we're going to have longer, healthier lives, we need to do something about all of these other aspects of um, society. So
0: brilliant, and and well, and and you've brought a lot of your thinking together recently in a new book that you've just published, "The Age of Ageing Better: A Manifesto for a Future." I've got one confession and two questions for you about the book. My confession is that this was my holiday reading. I did manage to escape the UK and I made it to Greece this summer. And this is what I read, honestly, beside the swimming pool. So thank you for that. (laughs) Um, Question one is, why have you written this book?
1: Yeah, well, obviously through my job, I, over the last five years, have been privileged to... Get to see lots of that evidence and data about what needs to change if more of us are going to have a good later life, and I suppose I realised that there was no point me keeping this uh, treasure trove of, of of insights to myself. You know, I can have a small impact through talking to my work colleagues and friends and family, but if we were really going to make a big difference. It needed me, through writing this book, to share it with a much, much wider readership and audience to make sure that we do make the changes that are needed so that we can perhaps have this age of ageing better. You might notice that there's a question mark after the age of ageing better. Um, And that's in part because it's not a sure thing. It's very dependent on whether we, one, wake up to the reality that the age is shift in the population is happening and it's happening now, and also that we do something about it.
0: And it is is a a one-stop shop for everything that's in aging. My second question is, how on earth did you find the time to write it? Did, were you doing this at sort of two o'clock in the morning? Were you getting up at six in the morning? Where? How did you uh, fit it well, a, bit,
1: a bit like you reading the book uh, on the poolside. Uh, a few <laughs> holidays where the laptop went with me, and uh, right. I sort of uh, left left the husband on the sunbed and and uh, went and did a bit of writing. But I mean, I've had fantastic support from colleagues. You know, so much of the information in there, as I say, is, is the cumulative effort of the team at Ageing Better over the last five years. And I had the particular help, help of an amazing research assistant, Amy.
0: Well, thank you to you. Thank you to Amy. Well, let's let's get into the debate then. And I'm going to take inspiration from your book. You, you state in the book that when it comes to ageing, we must tackle the doom mongers head on. Mm. You're very much trying to give a, a cup half full perception of ageing. Well, let me just put a challenge to you. Just in September of this year, it was reported that life expectancy in the UK is at a record high, 79 for a man and or 83 for a woman. Now, if I was a doom monger, I'd say this is a recipe for disaster, spiralling health care, spiralling social mm. care costs. Who's going to pay the pensions? If I'm a doommonger, challenge me, tackle me, tell me I'm wrong about this ageing society.
1: Well, you know, you'd be in good company. Uh, there's quite <laughs> a lot of the economists, people working in Treasury and in the Independent uh, Office for Budgetary Responsibility that sort of advises the Treasury. And they definitely look at the fact that there has been a huge shift and that this will continue over the next 20 years with more and more of us uh, living into old age. And just to give you and listeners a sort of sense of scale on that, Mm -hmm. uh, if we go back 20 years um, to 2000, there were 9 million of us uh, 65 and over in the UK. Today, 12 million 65 and over. If we fast forward 20 years, that's going to go up to 18 million. So these are big numbers. They're changing pretty, pretty fast. And so when you plug those numbers into your sort of economic model, if you're sitting at the Treasury, it it is quite um, scary. The sort of likely pension bill and the sort of costs in terms of health and social care. But, you know, what I would say is you're absolutely, you know, failing to see that, Lots of people in later life are contributing both directly by working for longer, by huge spending power, by contributing voluntarily to communities, by caring, whether that's for grandchildren or for their own loved ones. If we overlook that huge economic contribution, we're missing something. And the other yep. is this sort of assumption that, you know, what's going to be happening in the future is sort of the same as in the past, particularly in terms of health and social care almost assuming that a, a seventy year old in the future is going to cost as much and use as much health and social care as a seventy year old today well yes. we've seen that that's not true that actually many people are living longer but they're also living longer in 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 good health unfortunately not as long as we would like and mm-hmm. but there are things we can do and so I suppose the challenge back to the doomungs is if You know, if we put a different pair of glasses on and looked at this, we might see some new solutions. And if we actually implemented some of those new solutions, we might be able to turn what looks like a problem into an
0: opportunity. And Somebody said to me recently, there are various isms that challenge society ageism is one that impacts all of us so surely you're speaking to a population of people that want to age better it's nobody's interest for us not to age better so hopefully you've got a big team of supporters behind you yeah it's all Uh, of us definitely exactly exactly. and your manifesto as you call it you, you have four legs to your manifesto. I'm simplifying here, but you've got health, you've got housing, communities, and work. I want to focus on work. Mm. Aviva is a big employer. We service many millions of people who are employees. And your challenge is to have what you call fulfilling work for those aged 50 and over. Fulfilling work for those aged 50 and over. I wanted to say if you're ask you, if you're to give the UK a score out of 10 in its ability. Today, to give people over the age of 50 fulfilling work, how do we think you're we're doing as a country at the moment? Well,
1: I think it's a pretty mixed picture across all ages, you know, fulfilling work yep. you know, and there are different uh, definitions of what sort of quality work is. But, you know, decent pay, security, uh, fair opportunities for on the job training and promotion. Unfortunately, a lot of older workers, uh, along with quite a lot of younger workers, are not experiencing that. And we do see and have seen a really big growth in uh, insecure work uh, at those older ages as well as at younger ages. And unfortunately, this recent impact on the economy of uh, people being furloughed and made redundant... Similarly, it's having a disproportionate effect, not only on younger workers that we hear a lot about, but also on older workers. So, you know, it's really uh, we're not we're not we're not doing brilliantly on that yet. And we also know that there are quite a lot of people who over 50 who would like to be continuing to work. And for different reasons, particularly health conditions and finding it difficult to manage those health conditions at work. Or juggling caring responsibilities with work, fallout uh, of yep. employment, and then they find it very hard to get back.
0: No, exactly. And you, you touched there on the, the economic situation in which we find ourselves today. Nobody can discuss anything on this scale without referring to the pandemic, mm-hmm. and and and. Coronavirus has quite often been looked at through the lens of age. The elderly, it's said, Mm. are more at risk. The young, maybe, are more at the sharp end of economic challenge. Has has this challenging situation that we find ourselves in, has it made it harder for you to make a positive case about ageing, given the world in which we live today?
1: Well, I certainly think uh, we've seen some examples of the sort of ageist stereotypes and ageist ideas that were already fairly prevalent. But the idea that sort of everybody over 70 is vulnerable or dependent, I think uh, some of the early action uh, reinforced that. And I do think that in many ways, though, it's just shone a spotlight, really, on some of the issues that I highlight in the book. Um, So take housing, for example, a disproportionate number of the homes that fail even the government's own standards of what's called decent. So these are homes that create hazards for people's health and well-being and much more likely to be lived in by somebody um, older. And of course, they're the very people who are having to spend even more time in those homes and therefore having a further damaging effect on people's health so I think in many ways, the urgency to tackle some of these issues is only heightened by um, the recent uh, coronavirus.
0: Well, on, on the subject of ageing, I'm going to play the part here now of, of the case for the prosecution, that, that, that a longer working life is a bad thing, and I want you to, to push me back and challenge me back. I, mm-hmm. There are four, I've, I've identified four things that I quite often hear that the maybe the doom mongers would say when we talk about a fuller working life or a longer working life and the this debate and the first one is okay Anna you're basically saying we should all work until we drop is that is that what you're arguing here we all work until we drop
1: not at all many of us choose to work longer and for good reason a lot of us actually get a lot from our jobs Um, they keep us mentally and physically active we meet people and enjoy the social contact I think we're all missing that a bit uh, stuck at home Uh, and it gives us, you know, a reason to get up in the morning, what, you know, we might call meaning and purpose to our lives. So, you know, this is not something that, you know, the the government or even I'm arguing, uh, you know, people should do against their will. But as I mentioned, lots of people who want to work can't work. And so this is much more about supporting uh, people to have longer working lives, because we're having longer lives, we actually need to work for longer uh, for financial reasons too and it's about making that sustainable so we're not working till we drop but rather that we've had a good work life balance across the whole of our life and that we've been supported to think about careers to retrain and to find ourselves in work that we can continue to do hopefully
0: uh into our 70s so so you're not mandating we all work until we're 90 but if somebody does want to you want to create an environment that facilitates working Uh,
1: exactly have I convinced you Alistair
0: (laughs) yeah well that's only one of my four My second of my four is um okay this is great but surely the older worker in inverted commas is simply desk blocking a younger worker surely the older worker has a responsibility to move on to make way for the younger worker is that That's what I'm seeing in my case for the prosecution.
1: I'm afraid it's a complete myth, Alistair. Really? No evidence anywhere internationally that uh, older workers sort of are taking jobs from the young. In fact, when we see an economic upturn and jobs growth, we see that that benefits all ages. So the more older workers, the more younger workers you have in work. And um, as I just said, when you get a downturn like we've just had, I'm afraid it impacts um, on both older and younger workers. Okay. And I suppose the other thing, of course, is that just the sheer sheer numbers. You know, we we had a baby boom during the 1960s, and so there are just a lot more people now entering retirement than there are young people entering the workforce at the other end. And so we have a gap. So we actually need to keep some of those older workers just in work, just to sort of keep the status quo in terms of keeping the same number of uh, of workers available.
0: Okay, good. You're doing well. You're halfway through my four challenges. The third challenge is, okay, we need to keep these people in, work, these people, inverted commas, older workers. <laughs> um, but surely they're going to be less productive. We're all going to get tired as we age. So this is going to be bad for the economy, keeping people in work beyond normal age of retirement? Well, there's actually some
1: really positive studies that are showing that working in age diverse teams actually leads to better productivity. So studies are showing that the age diverse teams perform better than those that perhaps only have uh, younger workers. And I think you'll know this, more diverse, whether that's by gender or race or other aspects of diversity you've got more ideas diverse perspectives and if you can harness those and that's the critical thing is do we have age positive cultures in our workplaces if you can harness that you're actually going to get better results uh, than if you only have a very um let's say uh, uniform uh, workforce
0: certainly in aviva we have think I might have said, 17,000 people in the UK. We recently worked out or found out that our youngest is 17. Our oldest employee is 77. uh, And so we're trying (laughs) to celebrate the age diversity in the organisation. What can a 17-year-old learn from a 77-year-old and vice versa, 60 years of difference in in life experience in the organisation to to try and celebrate that? Well, that's
1: fantastic. And it would be great to see more employers uh, following your lead.
0: And then my final challenge then is, well, it's maybe okay for you and I. I'm sitting at my kitchen table. You're sitting in the top floor of your house to talk about fuller working lives. But some people work in maybe much more manual labour heavy industry. What's your message to that part of the population? Are you also expecting that part of the population to to keep working?
1: So I think we do need to recognise that if you've been in heavy manual work for uh, much of your working life, that sustaining that uh, longer will be more challenging but I don't think the answer to that is to say okay you don't need to work. I think there's a couple of things we need to do is we need to challenge whether that heavy manual work should be having such a damaging effect on people's health in the first place and there's you know there's lots that's already changed in terms of health and safety which has done a lot to reduce the negative impact of that sort of work. And hopefully with technology uh, coming along, we might see even more of that. I mean, there are rather futuristic things like exoskeleton suits that if people (laughs) put on could help them uh, do those sorts of manual jobs, perhaps with less uh, negative impact on their their health. But I think the second is that we need to help people to retrain. So let's not wait until they're in a situation where, you know, they've been doing let's say, scaffolding or um, construction their whole lives. And, you know, they get to 55, they're injured, they're unable to continue that. And the only thing that really faces them is, you know, to take some low skilled job or to find themselves on uh, a benefit, perhaps a health related benefit uh, and out of work. We should be, much before they get to that point, uh, intervening to help them think about what are the alternative career options here? How could I get some training that's going to give me what I need to work for another 15 or 20 years?
0: Well, I think you've passed the four tests. Yeah, well, thanks, (laughs) Alison. And and you've you've talked there about employment practices and Aviva, Mm -hmm. we've got thousands of employers who work with Aviva and they'll be listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. too. Helpfully in your book, you've listed the top five actions that a good employer should be taking. Now, I'm not going to challenge you to remember them, but I'm going to list them here. One is support flexible working. One is hire from all ages. Third is, as you've just said, ensure all ages have health support that they need. The fourth is create a positive age culture. And then the fifth one is encouraging career development at all ages. So those are five actions that good employers should be taking. I just want to focus on that last one, encouraging career development to all ages. In your book, you say the UK has the third worst rate of job-related training in the OECD, that's developed economies, for over 50s, the third worst job-related trading. Can you, can you explain why we're so proud of the economy of the United mm-hmm. Kingdom? Why are we the third worst? At trading the over 50s?
1: Well, it's a really good question. And I'm not sure we know the answer, but we see the consequence of it, uh, which is, you know, we do uh, under invest in what we might otherwise call lifelong learning, you know, opportunities for people to retrain and keep their skills updated so they can stay in the workplace. And, you know, I think with COVID, the impact on the economy, We're just seeing like how necessary uh, that is going to be. Um, I think there's a bit of an outdated view. You see it in terms of, you know, most of our emphasis is on people leaving home to go to university. You know, that sort of aspiration of higher or further education uh, as a young person. Uh, And then, you know, then you go off to the world of work and there is not the same value placed on You know, what I would call that sort of technical or on the job training. And even things like apprenticeships are generally seen as something that young people do at the start of their career, uh, whereas actually they should be equally available to somebody who wants to start again in their 50s and so i think we've just got to uh really take a a different look and a different approach and i think that's from everything from the department for education where we where the government puts the emphasis but also employers and and really valuing that sort of on the job know-how um
0: well in in aviva we we've talked about supporting a fuller working life being an age-friendly employer but then somebody rightly says well put your money where your mouth is. And, and first of all, we, we asked our own people about what does it feel like working for Aviva at all ages? And, and two concerning insights we gained. One was there was an unwritten rule that career development came to an end once you got to the age of 50. Mm-hmm. And that was a culture that certainly wasn't written down anywhere, but had created itself. Mm -hmm. And the second one was anecdotal feedback we were given that when uh, somebody in their 50s was maybe having their end of year review with their manager, the manager's opening line would be, well, this won't take long, will it? Sending sending the message, you know, wrongly sending the message that your career is behind you. So so, one of the things, and I want to just share this with you and and see, is this the kind of thing that you're maybe thinking employers should be doing in Aviva to try and challenge this culture? We've introduced what we call a midlife MOT. That's taking people, we take them over the age of forty-five, and give them the option of being given guidance on how to manage their their money their career and their health and well-being it's an optional intervention we've had really good impact with our own people they've felt the benefit from it we as a business have felt the benefit from it and so we're now going to launch that as an app to the public so that anyone over the age of 45 can get some hints and tips about how to manage their wealth their work and their well-being now I'm not asking you to endorse this but is that the type of thing that you're you'd be encouraging private employers to be thinking about?
1: Absolutely. So you talked there about the sort of five actions that an age-friendly employer Mm. can take. And we see having these ongoing uh, conversations, which do have an element of career conversation in them, but they also must recognise that this is broader than just a career conversation. It does need to bring in uh, questions about people's health, as you yeah. you are doing, and also you know financial planning. The, these are so interlinked. And we did some work early on with a few innovators, including yourselves, looking at the sort of potential of a midlife MOT. And it's been great to see how they have developed and evolved. We also did some pre-retirement courses, yeah, and evaluated those. And what we found there was how much uh, people value just having the opportunity to take a little bit of time out, to take a step back and to evaluate, as you say, sort of their future, what their plans are, and to think about it in this sort of holistic way, to think not just about uh, the usual sort of pension and uh, practical things about um, the next stage of life, but also to include things around the sort of psychological, emotional, that sort of well-being. So it's great to see is sort of wealth, work, and well-being at the heart of your um, midlife MOT at uh, Aviva.
0: Initially, being a financial company, we thought, well, well, we'll work with our people to help them manage their finances. But then, very quickly, we were told, "Wait a minute, my life was way much more than just my money. Mm-hmm. It is my career development, and it is my health and well-being." So we've tried to, to bring those three legs together in one app, and we'll certainly continue to learn and share with yourselves at the Centre for Ageing Better what we learn from that experience. So, so so brilliant. And I think so. I think just coming to a conclusion from our tour of aging in society, I've got two final questions for you. One is we're very good, you and I, maybe at telling what others should be doing to help them age better. But can I ask you what actions are you personally taking to ensure you age better?
1: Well, gosh, you're putting me on the spot now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I like to think I'm um, doing pretty well on the keeping fit Um, so I'm a regular swimmer but I also do yoga and it's really important that we mix the aerobic exercise with exercises that promote strength and balance we've found that from our uh, work so I practice what we preach uh, in, in that regard I've also know the benefits of being involved in the community. And so I'm quite active uh, in my local church and really invest in friendships and relationships with my nieces and nephews. Actually, I don't have children. And so I've also understood that it's going to be really important to me later on to have relationships with with my nieces and nephews uh, so that there's somebody around uh, to um, support for me and advocate for me when I get to that life stage. Um, I suppose I do quite well on my pension savings, but um, there's I could probably do more. And I haven't quite got to the stage yet where I'm converting my um, home that is a rather tall, thin uh, <laughs> terraced house with no loo on the ground floor. And All right. actually, it was really clear to me when my um, mother-in-law uh, was quite ill towards the end of her life we got to a point where she couldn't visit us any longer because um, she couldn't get up the steep flight of stairs so there is something about thinking about our homes and uh, I probably am not quite as prepared as I need to be yet
0: but I guess for all of us this is not a case of set and forget we're continually working at making age better so yeah yeah, yeah, Work, in progress, thanks. Work in progress. And, and yeah, the final one is you mentioned some statistics about the number of people living into later life. One of my favourite little statistics, I might have the, the years wrong, but about 100 years ago, King George V started sending telegrams to people reaching their 100th birthday I think it was 1917 he began the tradition and he sent 24 telegrams to people celebrating the 100th birthday. And now the latest statistics tell us that this year, incredibly, there'll be more than 13,000 people in the United Kingdom living to 100 and beyond. So a huge transformation. I guess a question for you, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer to this, but the question is, do you want to live until you're 100?
1: Well, I guess yes, why not? I think it's (laughs) my short answer because I wrote in the book that uh, there are various online calculators that you can sort of put your details in and it gives you an idea of what your likelihood is of living to 100 and what your life expectancy might be. And uh, anyway, 93 popped out as my sort of life expectancy. So, so I'm okay. already preparing that I'll definitely probably make it to 90. So another 10 years doesn't seem too bad. Um, I think the key's mm-hmm. got to be, can I still enjoy yeah. my life, you know, and live live a quality of life uh, that I'm OK with? I, I I don't know at this point what that would look like, but, you know, still be able to enjoy the things i enjoy now uh,
0: you've got various quotes in your book and the first one i think you've got in here is it's more about how we live than about how long we live so yeah. so i think i'm hearing what you're saying Anna, brilliant. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for everything you do at Century for Aging Better. Thank you for the book, The Age of Aging Better, a manifesto for our future. I have enjoyed reading it on holiday. I'm sure others will too. And um, and we'll keep in touch and we'll be speaking, I'm sure, sometime again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks,
1: Alistair. I've enjoyed the conversation and thanks for having me on.